0: Oh, I'm gonna go to her wake. Why No, you're not. Why not? It's today. What? Paulson's funeral parlor. Next show's at 4. Shit, what about tomorrow? One night only. She's buried in the morning. Oh, you gotta watch the store. I gotta go to this. Wait, 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 wait. Has it ever occurred to you that I might be bereaved as well? You hardly
1: knew her. True. But do you know how many people are gonna be there? All of her old classmates, to say the least. Oh, stop it. This is beneath even you. I'm not gonna miss what's probably gonna be the social event of the season. <laughs> you hate
0: people. But I love gatherings. Isn't it ironic? We are the wretched refuse, we're the underdogs, we're mutts. we're mutants, there's something wrong with us, something very, very wrong with us, something seriously wrong with us.
2: What's up, folks? Welcome back to another episode of Project Archivist. And this week we have another historian of the strange with us, which is Chris Widyard. This interview is really cool. This is if, if you are a fan of Robert Schnack or any of the classic strange history that we cover, then you're going to like this show um you hit it off with her very very well you were like which was nice because like when you hit it off with a guest and you talk i can just sit back and listen which is nice i rather enjoy (laughs) that um wow this pop is really i'm it's called soda damn it i pepsi has come out with this pepsi 1893 original cola and we've got it up here in michigan it comes in a black can and then there's a gold can that has ginger flavoring to it and they also came out with this uh Mountain Dew Midnight, which is Blackberry Mountain Dew. But that's not important. Um but this stuff is it's supposed to be the original formula minus the uh, what did you say it had in it? Um per- Yeah, what what is that stuff?
1: It's a it's a type of uh pain reliever slash drug slash woo.
2: Okay. This doesn't have Per-gork that in acid. It. but it's supposed to be the original flavor of what the original cola, Pepsi Cola tasted like and uh, it's really, really good. I liked it a lot. It comes in those little you know skinny cans, like red Bull kind of size cans, and uh How many
1: I, ounces is it
2: twelve fluid ounces
1: oh, so it's just a just a fancy can.
2: It's a fancy black can. I'm gonna send you some. I'm gonna go find some at the store, and I'm gonna like I, mail it I down can't
1: find it here.
2: No, I'll mail it down to you like I did the fago that I sent down to you. Did you consume oh, that all that fago? what? <laughs> How fast did you consume here. the Fago that I, I did mailed not you? Not last a
0: week here. Did
2: your family all turn into juggalos? <laughs> Let me
1: turn into
0: juggalos?
2: We'll get into it hard after. hard with,
1: ju- with the clowns for years, bro. All
2: right, we'll we'll cover all that after the interview. Anyhow, let's let's jump into the interview. Uh, Chris was gracious enough. We've been going back and forth on Twitter to set up this interview for a while now, and for whatever reason, one thing would happen here, one thing would happen there. We could never just seem to get it to click, and finally, it did. and And she went out and bought a. a good microphone to record the interview with and everything. And this was her first real Skype interview. Um, and she was kind of nervous at first we're like no no we're real we're, we're, we're easy to talk to you're going to have a you're going to have a fine time here and she came through in spades and she's talking yes, to yes. us about her book The Victorian Book of the Dead and I say it many times in this interview and I'll say it again before we actually do the interview I'll put a link in the show notes to where to go buy this it is an excellent excellent book if you are into strange and unusual history it's uh, the pr- price on the back of it's 19.99 it's on Amazon i'm sure it's a little bit cheaper than that because we're going through Amazon go buy this book. It's a very big book. It's very worth the money. It's an excellent read. It's one of those things where it's a full of a whole bunch of like little short things. You can sit and read it in bite-sized pieces and you're really going to enjoy it. But, uh, let's jump into the interview and we'll see you guys at the other side. Joining us today is Chris Woodyard, author, and I would say another historian of the strange, and you are out of Ohio. Am I correct in that?
3: That's correct, yes. Okay. Um, An undisclosed
2: location. In in a bunker somewhere down in Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a good idea with all the election junk going on right now. You were here to talk to us about the Victorian Book of the Dead. I was telling you off the air, I really, really enjoyed this book. It's just full of little snippets of strange oddities from the Victorian era, but these
3: are, are these primarily mostly located in the United States for the most part? There's kind of a mix. It's mostly United States, but there's also European sources, British sources, uh, because, you know, they're, they invented the Victorian mm-hmm. death motif.
2: <laughs> so, describe this book for us, because I don't want to do it improperly. I've read about 95% of it, but being that you're the author of it, I don't want to you know, give the wrong impression. So tell everybody what the Victorian Book of the Dead is.
3: It is a collection of primary sources um, talking about the popular culture of Victorian mourning and death. Uh, it also talks about the material culture of mourning and death, uh, about the costumes and about the the graveyards and the, the rituals of Victorian mourning. But it's also about the oddities. We've got, you know, corpses, crepe, crypts, uh, all kinds of fortean stories uh, about exploding corpses uh, petrified corpses uh, strange products for morning such as um w- morning bicycles for heaven's sake you c- you <laughs> you could have a black enameled bicycle i knew i needed to write this book though when i found out about the morning cigarettes for widows. what what Mor- morning cigarettes uh they're made with they're wrapped in black paper and they were packaged in black crepe paper. It was so the widow could enjoy a smoke without showing an incorrect flash of white. Oh, wow. All I right. was going to ask you a little about this
2: a little bit later in the interview, but since you brought it up twice already, what the hell is crepe? What is crepe. this stuff?
3: Crepe is the morning fabric. If you did not have crepe, you were not in mourning. Um, it was a... Fabric made usually in England. It was almost all imported. It was very expensive. It was made out of wool or silk. Uh, It was coated with toxic chemicals, um, arsenic among some of them. Uh, It was heated with irons to make it crinkle so it looks like the folds of a brain. It's lovely. It's also very scratchy. Apparently, it has a smell, and uh, there were all kinds of physicians' warnings if you had Bad lungs or bad eyes—you did not want to have a crepe veil over your face uh, because you would be inhaling this toxic stew of air coming through the veil. Uh, it also stained like crazy. Uh, if you got caught in the rain, you would—you would—it would bleed. So um, oh, great! <laughs> then there are all these toxic remedies for how to get the stains off your face and off your hands. So. Altogether, it was just a joy to wear. But uh, it was the quintessential mourning fabric. Uh, you put it on your door handle or your door knocker to tell people that somebody was dead in the house. Uh, widows were advised that they had to have a border this many inches long on their skirts, to be perfectly correct. But if you saw somebody wearing crepe, you knew that they had suffered a bereavement. Why couldn't they – this is going
2: to probably sound like a dumb question, but why couldn't they just wear regular black clothing or something like that? Why did it have to be
3: crepe? Was- That's a really good question, and I really don't have an answer for why crepe in particular. Um, there was a rule that all morning fabrics had to be dull in finish, and crepe is very dull in finish. But you can find a, any kind of silk with a sort of a matte finish it it really didn't have to be crepe but for some reason and now that you've brought that up i'm going to have to go research that and find out exactly why crepe took hold i mean
2: like if 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 somebody were seeing you in the morning and you're just wearing like a regular black dress with, with oh that's so gauche why are they wearing just regular black instead of crepe you know it's like a that's a right fashion faux
3: pas or something like that it was fashion faux pas and people were really strict about it um there's a story i have from Um, England about this poor little servant girl she married a painter and he fell off a ladder and died and she was trying to be sensible so she bought a regular black dress and a black hat without the heavy veil and all the crepe and stuff because she could wear it anywhere well her neighbors and her family saw her wearing this and said you had better go buy some crepe and a veil and a bonnet or else, will claim you know you were never married. You're showing disrespect to the dead. Oh. So she had to go and spend all this money wow. because it was it was very expensive. Crepe was, and they had this wonderful rule that, uh, or it was a superstition or a tradition. I, I'm not sure what you'd call it. That after the mourning period was over, you had to get rid of all the crepe in the house, or else there would be another death following very quickly. Yeah, from now, the crepe. Right, yeah, I'm thinking this must have come from the crepe manufacturer's lobby (laughs) or something like that Uh, because not – and, of course, not everybody did that. Um, There's a wonderful story about – I can't remember which of the presidents died. I'm going to say McKinley. And someone hung up crepe that they had kept over from when Lincoln had died and displayed it as a symbol of mourning. Hmm, hmm. So people didn't necessarily get rid of it because it was very expensive, and there's yeah, all these come through of- the
1: auction house. Have you? Yeah, we've had, well, we used to get a lot of morning stuff. We've had morning jewelry come through. Yeah, he works repair. at an auction house on
2: occasion. I forgot to mention that.
1: We've had a lot of strange morning uh, yes. things come through, which are really cool to me, but a lot of other people kind of shy away from it.
3: Right, right, yeah, but the the morning clothing does seem to have been discarded when you Mm -hmm. finished with your mourning period and um, people talk about having very fashionable mourning so it did change it wasn't just that you had one black dress and it all looked the same uh, it, it did change with the fashions.
2: I would think you would want to get rid of it as fast as possible if it was really such a grief to wear the way you describe it. I,
3: mean, it, it, I, mean, tr- I
2: would add you if, if you started sweating, the stuff had to be it had to be uncomfortably hot. So if you started sweating and you were wearing the hat or something like that, and it had toxic qualities to it.
3: Yes, you know, indeed, and and there was also uh, people were taught would talk about how depressing it was to wear black all the time because a woman if if she lost her husband. She had to wear mourning for at least a year. Oh, man. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it was for two years. Um, It just depended on where you lived, what the custom was. But it was one or two years. And that had to be incredibly depressing. Um, They also make jokes, of course, about women wanting to get rid of their weeds as quickly as possible. Um, Their mourning weeds is is how it was described. But – yeah, I would think it was very depressing to, to wear. And during World War One, so many men died that um, there was sort of an informal movement. The government never stepped in on this. But an informal movement to stop people from wearing mourning because it was so depressing. Soldiers would be home on leave and all they could see was this sea of black in the streets. So they made a suggestion that you just wear a black band or you wear a black brooch Something to show you were mourning, but not the full head to toe mourning costume. Well, that's
2: I guess this would be a good point to bring in the topic of you bring up in the book professional widows. Yes. The people that you would call and say there's been a death in the family and then this like limousine would just come pulling up and these people would all come running out and they would have cases of clothing and they would just take care of like everything that you needed to have done to your for your period of mourning
3: yes it was one-stop shopping and the rule was that once there was a death you really weren't supposed to be seen in public unless you were dressed in your morning. It was disrespectful and against etiquette. So what you would do would be you'd call your dressmaker and she would come over and fit you and and make a dress for you. Or you would call one of these morning warehouses. Uh, In England, there was Peter Robinson's and Jay's morning warehouse where they kept a whole stock of all kinds of things you might need. And they would send a fitter and a saleswoman like this professional widow who was dressed, just dressed to the nines, dressed in the most fashionable thing that you could possibly imagine in black. Uh, And she would show you samples, and you would make your selection of widow's caps, of a veil, of a bonnet, of shoes. And I've seen lists of what a widow needs, and there's about 30 or 35 separate items just in the clothing alone that you would need to be a correct widow. Uh, very, very expensive. But of course, this widow was there to upsell you uh, whatever you needed and make suggestions because as it says uh, in the article about the professional widow, there's 101 little things which the average person does not know about correct mourning. And so, oh, how convenient. We know them all. Yeah, we know them all. <laughs> and they're very expensive and will... We'll put you on the convenient payment plan. Uh, But they also would sell things like black-bordered cards that you could use to respond to people that were sending you condolences, um, black gloves, uh, as I said, widow's caps, which you would wear indoors, and then bonnets and veils, which you'd wear outdoors and morning jewelry and all kinds of goodies would these be the guys that you would get the morning bicycles from as well (laughs) that one seems to have been I I expect they could have gotten you one that was a little bit later uh, at the height of the bicycle craze and it seemed to have actually been made by a manufacturer of bicycles and it was all it was enameled in flat dull black and there was no chrome on it so there was nothing shiny that would offend The morning sensibility.
2: Man, this sounds like the goth Sears robot catalog (laughs) right here. It
3: does. It does. (laughs) It's
2: like that that business would probably do exceptionally well today for all of the wrong reasons. (laughs)
3: Exactly. And there was a really interesting, it was a fad. Now, whether it was much of a fad or whether it was just reported as a novelty by the newspapers, it was called the morning boudoir. So if you were a very merry widow, you would decorate your bedroom in black. You would have black hangings on the wall. You would have black sheets. You would have all the furnishings. What? And, really? And <laughs> yep. I have to do it upright. <laughs> have to do it upright, and all your underwear was black, although some people said that was in just too bad a taste, um, but a questionable taste. I'm all for that. <laughs> So, yes. Uh, There was – it was sort of like uh, I call it the wedding industrial complex today where they're always trying to sell you something extra. You know, oh, we have this new tradition you have to follow. So now you need – this kind of favor, or a unity candle, or something, and I think that the the mourning industry was very much like that because they were always trying to think up new products to sell.
2: You know, I kind of went when my mom passed away. I kind of went through the same thing. My mom, before she passed away, made it very clear. She's like, just cremate me, have me cremated. I don't want to be seen at the at the funeral like that. Mm-hmm. So when the time came, it was it was a very quick and simple decision for me. It wasn't that it wasn't that big of a deal. She just wanted <laughs> to be cremated. She wants simple ceremony, blah, blah. And they were like, well, we could do this. And we could do that, and blah blah. And I could just hear my mom' voice in my head saying, "No, no, this is what I wanted. This <laughs> is the way it was." And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, "I'm like, I don't have a lot of money to pull this off. It's a rough time for me." But they've got this weird way of trying to upsell you. They are the strangest
1: salesmen at that time it's because you're low. That's why. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It's easy and to prey on the low. Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm like, "No, no, this is this is it." And they're like, "Okay, well, if, you know, if that's what you want, you know." And I'm like, "Well, that's that's what she wanted, and you know, I'm completely fine with this." So. You know, and they had this really strange attitude that I wouldn't that I wouldn't budge on it. I don't know if that was trying to guilt me into getting more stuff or, or it what is, it was. Yes,
3: I, so. I think guilt had a lot has a lot to do with it. Um, guilt is huge. Huge. And, <laughs> and, I and just, you find, go ahead.
2: I, I could just see, in this time period, you know, when you're going through the whole mourning process, you know, you wanna you wanna do things right, and you wanna. You're already going through a rough period in time, and you're already going to have to adjust to wearing black. The idea of wearing black for two years, though, I don't know. That seems a little absurd to me. Even for a year sounds a little absurd to me. But I can just see these people coming in with these crates of clothing and being like, well, we have this, and we have that, and we can do this, and we can do that. You know, unless you're somebody that really embraces that kind of thing, I can't see people wanting to buy sheets and all that kind of stuff, though. I know know. that
3: that really does seem to be excessive. Unless you're
2: Morticia Adams or something, but you know, (laughs) (laughs)
3: and and that was perhaps part of the, it was almost like a parody uh, because they, they spoke about, you know, how uh, fashionable these women were and how they were taking it to an extreme. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there was a lot of guilt involved though. Um, I, I read, um, There's dialogues that they they post about um, the saleswoman talking to the widow about, well, you need this, and, oh, you didn't realize you needed that. And in the French tradition in particular, um, they had a very – they were even more rigid than the English about their mourning, and you had to follow everything A to Z, And you had to have carriages following behind the hearse. You had to have X amount of floral tributes. You had to have beaded Mm -hmm. wreaths. You had to have mourners walking, wearing a certain kind of livery. And uh, there was just no end to the things that were correct. And it's funny because about every three months in the newspapers, you will see articles about what's correct in mourning. And it's always roughly the same, telling you how long you're supposed to mourn for what level of relative, and what kinds of clothes you should be wearing, and the finishes. Um, and then after the the year was over for the widow, she could start going into what was called half mourning. <laughs> <had, laughs> there was also quarter mourning, believe it or <laughs> not, and and that meant you know slightly shinier finishes. You might add some jet beads or something, but. Um, Yes, it was very, very codified. How dare you wear that? You're not as as even done was, with your half morning yet.
1: <laughs> yes. it seems as though it was following the aristocracy more than anything else. It was a way of keeping up appearances, even in death.
3: It was indeed. A good, good an, uh, analogy there, because um, once the upper class got a hold of something, it became obsessive for the lower orders, as it were, to... Copy it. Keeping and up with the Joneses? That was the height of respectability. If you know the Duchess was doing this or the Lord of the Manor was doing this, then obviously we should be doing it too. And unfortunately, um, a lot of poorer individuals went into terrible debt. To keep up appearances and to buy all the accoutrements that you needed the morning. And there were lots and lots of people that just raged against this uh, and said, you know, this is ridiculous. The widow got 20 pounds for burial insurance and she spent more than that on the funeral and that could have fed her children for months. That brings me
2: to the other thing you cover in your book, and it was prof- uh, professional mourners. You called them amateur mourners, though. Um, were these were these were people that uh, I, I think that you you'd be able to hire them to come and mourn if you didn't have enough people there for your for the uh, on behalf of of the person that passed away, or were these people that just like to show up and hang out at funerals?
3: Well, the amateur mourners were the ones that like to show up at funerals and just hang out, um, and the Undertakers jokingly called them professional mourners in the United States, there really were very few professional mourners we We find a couple of references to them um, in I think delaware and and New York. but uh, they weren't a common thing in America. They were common in Europe where they even had unions, uh, particularly in France, and they would go on strike if they didn't get proper um, refreshments and they didn't get paid properly or they didn't like the clothes they were told to wear. What?
2: This it, it yeah. sounds like rock star, like you, you got a professional <laughs> writer. I'm sorry, there's no yellow M&Ms here, so we can't mourn for yeah, your loss. Exactly,
3: exactly. <laughs> um, oh, no, they wanted black black jelly beans. Um on that. but in the in in the united states um they were more these people that just enjoyed going to funerals and uh they they kind of upset the undertakers because they would show up they were usually ladies elderly ladies and they would be dressed in the Deepest black, and they would wail and cry as if they had known the you know deceased all their life. They'd never seen them before in their life, and then they'd get to ride to the cemetery in the carriages. It was a nice day out for them, and maybe they'd get refreshments. Um, So some of the undertakers finally said, "Enough's enough, you know. Only people going to the to the cemetery uh, who are members of the family they get tickets, and if you don't have a ticket, you don't get to ride." Um, but apparently there are people who still do this. I was going to say, I think there's companies out there now that you can still hire. This people happens to, a
1: lot overseas. It happens in, uh. Right. Singapore. In yeah, Virginia, Singapore, Florida. Japan, want, there are some, I know there's some, there's some small groups in China that still do yes, this. Yes, yes. You can even hire strippers
3: at your. Yes, at your, I saw so. that. <laughs> so. And there are famous, uh, mourners over. Oh, yeah. in In the, in the Orient, um. But nowadays, you know, we we pretty much in America here just go with the ordinary kinds of grief, uh, which is kind of mourn for three weeks and forget about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the time, um, the undertakers would say things like, um, "It's their amusement." They're one diversion, and they make the most of it. They dress in black. They wear lugubrious expressions upon their faces and would be taken for the real mourners by the casual observer. They go to a funeral as other people go to a party or a theater Mm. for amusement. It's creepy. (laughs) Especially distressful case is a treat. One of my favorite amateur mourners, though, she was terrific. Um, She would go and she had a long black veil and she would sit in the front and cry and cry and cry. And then as the mourners were taking their last look at the person in the coffin, she would contrive to be last in line. She'd get up to the coffin and then she would fling herself onto the body. Her veil would cover the coffin and she would loot the corpse of any jewelry or trinkets under the cover of The Veil. Huh. So she was... Uh, She's kind pay- of genius, actually. <laughs> she was making a lot of money at it. Um.
2: Okay, let me move on to this then. Because this is something... The next thing is something we've always wanted to cover on this show, but we've never been able to pin anybody down to go into it. And that is the topic of death
1: photographers.
2: Yes. Um, so... Talk to me about death photographers. Now, Lobo, before we go any further, you've had some pictures come through your auction house. We,
1: we have. They of death are...
2: photography. Mm-hmm. I'm yep.
1: fascinated by them. Always have been, even as a small child. So uh, explain so... what
2: death photography was. Because I've seen pictures where it's like if, a fam- like if 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 Grandpa George died or something like that, the whole family would get together and take an actual picture of him sitting there, with the family or you'd see these creepy pictures where like if the kids died, they would get the family together and take a picture with the family, with the kids in the picture as though they were still alive or something. it's, it's Mm -hmm. very,
3: very weird. And back then it wasn't viewed that way or. It, well, it depended on who you were. Um, there were some photographers who would refuse to do this kind of work and there were others that specialized in it. Um, It was not considered to be particularly weird. Um, One photographer who had actually gotten his start photographing Civil War dead um, then moved on to photographing other types of dead in his studio. And he said um, that he had to make sure nobody knew he was doing this in his studio because his customers would shy away if they knew there were dead bodies in there. And he said... People have a foolish horror of death, you know, and it will would actually be afraid to come if they thought I had dead bodies here. The photography only took a moment, and there was really nothing awful about it. The mother, poor soul, will have something to look at and cry over now. And I thought that was a really interesting statement. Um, a lot of the – we see a lot of children, a lot of baby post-mortem photos, because Mm -hmm. the child had never lived long enough to be photographed, and it was important for them to document that this child had lived and been loved. Um, I think, really, baby postmortems are probably the largest category that I see. Um, You do find families sometimes gathered around the coffin. Sometimes you just see the infant laid out, um, either in the coffin or on a sofa, uh, it depended when you were taking the photograph what style you would be doing um, sometimes the the dead would be displayed in coffins um, if you had a place where there wasn't much good light they would sometimes take the coffin outside and stand it upright so you could properly see the person and and get a good picture um, sometimes they laid the dead on sofas or Shaz Lounge to make them appear as if they were just sleeping. Uh, there was a uh, sort of a move. Uh, there was an expression, not dead, but only sleeping. And, and that was kind of the motive uh, or the, the way they wanted to be photographed. We, they didn't want to look really, really dead. They just wanted to look as if they were peacefully slumbering. Mm-hmm. And there's some beautiful, beautiful pictures out there. The earlier ones, the daguerreotypes of um, the dead, the daguerreotype postmortems are are sometimes more stark.
1: You see, absolutely, they are. The the coloring,
3: wasted. Uh, Yeah. You also see in some of them. I've seen trickles of blood coming from the nose, mouth, or injuries, or evidence of disease. Yep. Uh, very very stark but as you go on into the 19th century the 1880s and 90s they really wanted to give a very peaceful beautiful beautiful image um, the slogan was secure the shadow ere the substance fades so they wanted to capture that blissful moment where the the person looked as if they were just sleeping so were there a
2: lot of people that did this kind of photography or just a handful every so often
3: there were not. It was not a handful by any means. Um, mm. There was a. You see advertisements for people specializing in it, and um, it was very lucrative because people want, would pay anything to get a good picture of someone who had never been photographed before. So uh, no, it, it was not particularly rare. Um, there were, as I said, photographers who said things that they were uh, said things like this. Uh, someone asked this photographer, "How about photographing the dead?" We discourage it altogether. It is a ghastly process and is suggested by minds insane with grief. It would be just as wise to keep the coffin plate or a bit of the shroud as a memento of those who are gone. Well, people did keep coffin plates. Um, I have one. Do you? Yes, Is it I do. Engraved? Is it engraved? Uh, no,
1: no. It was. It's actually a. Um, it was a. It was one that was carried by a, a salesman. Ah. I ended up with it. Mm-hmm. So well,
3: whenever I would see these, I'm like, w- did someone rip that off the coffin and and take it away? But since I've been seeing more photographs of these. Sometimes the coffin plate, several were made. One was for the outside, and one was just sitting on the inside of the lid. And they would remove it and perhaps frame it with some flowers from the funeral and, and put it in the parlor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they were kept as a sort of a genealogical souvenir. I, I read about one family that had something like 25 coffin plates going back to their family members in the American Revolution. Uh, and they very proudly displayed them in their parlor.
1: Wow, they're just they're they're pretty. I don't care what anybody says. They are. I think they're pretty. They are pretty. Yeah,
2: just so you don't get weirded out. Lobo's not actually that weird of a guy. He just happens to come across a lot of this kind of stuff. He's not a very I've, macabre I've, person. <laughs> <laughs> I've
1: been macabre my whole life.
3: <laughs> <laughs> when you work in the auction industry, I would think you would find a lot of this this sort of thing. Uh, we because... do see a
1: lot. We we we've come across, but even even before I started working for an auction house. I've always been drawn to the more macabre things in life. I
2: think there was one time when when Lobo and I were talking and on the phone and you said you'd come across hair lockets or something like that, funeral oh, hair lockets.
1: Yes. Yep, yes. That's just there's necklaces, there's rings, there's mm-hmm. lockets, there's and they're they're woven from the hair of the deceased. They're well, beautiful.
3: They- some of them are also, they were taken from the hair of the living. They were sentimental, sentimental jewels as well, True. but when you've got something with somebody's dates on it, obviously it's a memorial piece, um, yep. and and those were very popular, and they made these hair wreaths. Um, yep. They wound the hair on wire, and they look like tarantulas, giant tarantulas. They, they're pretty hideous. Wow. They, they, they quiver. Uh, so I'm not, not very keen on, on hair jewelry, but one of the first ways I got interested in Victorian death was up in my grandparents' attic. There was a picture of a dead baby. And I didn't realize it was dead because its eyes had been painted open. Mm. Painted uh, open? Painted open. Um, because if you, if you sometimes they did that, uh, again, to make it appear more as if it was still with us. Um, would they have makeup artists that would come in and do this kind of stuff? There were not uh, – well – Okay. <laughs> Morticians or undertakers um, had sort of subcontractors. And if you needed a face painted because somebody had been shipped a long way and their face had turned black or they were in town and they decomposed a bit more than they should have, you might bring in somebody to paint. Yeah, because preservation wasn't so good back then. <laughs> it was it was not bad, though. Um, we, when we think of like President Lincoln... Um, who mm-hmm. was embalmed and sent on a very long train journey. Now, he did turn black, and they, they had to powder him to make him look better. Um, but there were some people, they were mostly amateurs, or, well, they weren't amateurs because they got paid, but there was not really a profession, uh, a professional cosme- cosmetician. I'm not sure how you, what, what you call it. Mm-hmm. The people that do the cosmetics um, at The Undertakers until later in the 19th century. And you don't really find the rouge and the the heavy makeup until probably the 20th century. It it really became more of a thing in the early 20th century.
2: This is Tom. This is Jake. And this is Travis.
3: And we are the drunken dork
2: podcast
1: tune in every week and listen to us discuss the finer points on superheroes the latest pop culture news as well as all of our favorite blues you can listen
0: to us on itunes
1: TuneIn radio or the stitcher app for android and be sure to catch up on all of our episodes by visiting us over at www.drunkendorkpodcast.wordpress.com
2: and remember folks you have one liver ruin it well
0: Not all vampires sparkle. Underwood and Flinch is a vampire novel by Mike Bennett. Get it now for free from iTunes, MikeBennettAuthor.com, UnderwoodandFlinch.com and Podiobooks.com or source it using the LibriVox app, amongst others. Underwood and Flinch by Mike Bennett. Putting the blood back in vampire fiction.
2: Hey, congratulations. You're already listening to one of the best podcasts on the internet, Project Archivist, with Rojan and Lobo, a couple of guys I've known for a long time. They put on a great show, and so do I. It's called Sword and Scale, and it deals with true crime, horrible things that have happened in this world that we live in, with real people that live amongst us. In fact, what we say on the show is that the worst monsters are real, and I think if you listen to some of our stories, you too will agree. So head on over to sword dot com after the episode and give us a listen. And now back to the show. Now let's move on to like the undertakers and you've got a section in your book talking about tombstone madness Yes. for people who would work quote the midnight shift, uh, where these people would, you know, there was an epidemic of
3: these people losing their minds. That's what they claimed. Now, uh- Let's go back just a a touch to give a little background to this. Um, You had people, the body snatchers, the resurrection men, who wanted to steal corpses from the graveyard. So what did you do? You hired a watchman. Now, the watchman could be bribed, and, and sometimes they looked the other way. But they patrolled the graveyard in all um, types of weather, all all times of day. Uh, if it was wet weather, they had to be out in force because it softened the ground so much it was easier to dig up the corpses. So I never thought were, of that. <laughs> well, these are these yeah. are little little details that we just we've lost in in the course of history.
2: I've never thought about stealing a corpse from a graveyard though, but. <laughs> I guess that would be the best time to do it.
1: There was a lot of money to be made doing that.
3: There really was a lot of money. It's and... Burke
1: and Hare ended up in so much trouble.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, they were actually they actually um cut out the middleman as it yeah. were and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they
1: started carrying killing their own. So.
3: Killing their own? Who were, who
2: were Burke and Hare? Not to cut you off, but so, since you bring them up, who were Burke and Hare?
3: Uh they were in uh Edinburgh and they started murdering people. They found out first they started out as body snatchers, um selling corpses to the local anatomy school, which was run by this one particular doctor and I I can't remember his name. What's his name? Uh Oh. Buys, buys the beef. Uh, he oh, anyway. Yeah,
1: yeah. there's he, a whole poem to it. There's Not a poem, poem yeah. a that yes. goes along
3: with it. Yes. Um. At any rate, they realized that they were they had a fresh supply of corpses to hand. So they smothered a prostitute who was very well known, a very pretty young woman. Uh, they also smothered a disabled young boy who was also very well known. So when those showed up. In the anatomy lab, somebody got suspicious because uh, they had actually smothered them, gotten them drunk and smothered them. Dr. Knox. Knox is the boy who buys the beef. beef. Yes. So they're known as body snatchers, but they really were just murderers. Yep. (laughs) But over here, we had a problem because um, you could legally use the corpses of suicides and – executed criminals to dissect at the medical schools. But there was just no way to keep up with the demand. Uh, Not enough people were being executed and not enough people were killing themselves. So they would uh, go out to the graveyard and dig things up. And um, it was – the really good ones prided themselves on getting a grave open, the corpse out, and stripped in 15 minutes and get the grave back looking the way No one would ever know.
1: What? Really? Yeah, that's why they started using grave liners.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah, the grave. What? (laughs) Is this like a NASCAR pit crew or something? Oh, it it (laughs) it was perfection. They they knew what they would do. They would hire people to come to the funeral to kind of scope things out. Okay, this is the grave plot right here. The head should be right about here. um and they would dig down just to the head, break open the coffin, and put a hook under the chin of the corpse and drag it out of the coffin. Mm-hmm. Because that way they didn't injure any uh, organs that would the, the, the doctors would enjoy looking at. So then they stripped it because if you stole any of the jewelry or the clothes, that was a felony. A corpse belonged to nobody. Yep. It, was, it could not be personal property, so um, – Hmm. It, they still did it under cover of darkness because they're you know they, if they got caught they'd be lynched by the mm-hmm. family or indignant public citizens um, and then they'd sell the corpse for anywhere from 15 to fifty dollars to the local medical school was that good
2: money back then or oh, was yeah. that just kind of me- yeah,
3: it was very good money It was good the, money people were murdered there was a terrible case um, in Cincinnati Ohio there was a there's big medical school down there and um and this family of three, a, a husband and wife and their granddaughter, were brutally murdered and uh, their cabin set on fire so that nobody would notice that they were not in there. And uh, they took them to the medical school and sold them. But the, the men were actually arrested and, and hung. Which and was And then un- they were used. And then they were used, yes. They were anatomized. Really? Um, presidents um let's see Harrison one of the president's father ended up uh up hanging nude up a chimney at the Cincinnati Medical School he had to go find his own father's body uh because he figured it had, he knew this, the gra- grave had been robbed um his cousin's grave had been robbed initially his father died maybe a week later um he went looking for his cousin's body and unexpectedly found his father. Oh, man. And he was never able to even speak the word father again. Oh, man. That was was President Benjamin Harrison. Uh, They called it the Harrison Horror. Oh,
2: man.
1: Ugh.
3: Wow. That sucks. That was uh, pretty... That's a heavy trip. (laughs) That was pretty traumatic. And they eventually found the cousin's body. I think he'd been pickled and put into a barrel marked Pork or beef or something, and they were going to ship him to Canada.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's one hell of yeah. a shipment.
2: Yeah, we're going to touch back on that one in a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> so, getting back to the Tombstone
3: guys, the Tombstone madness. Yes, the oh, Night Tombstone madness. We've we've gone crazy with that. Um, well, anyway, the, well, that's these fine. <laughs> these watchmen were were there in the dark, and it was kind of a melancholy position to be in. It was cold they drank to keep off the cold uh, the body snatchers were very aggressive and some of them came armed and we've got records of gun battles among the tombstones so wow and, and of and of watchmen being murdered t- so that people could dig without hindrance but um, it said that uh, they called it, a state of melancholia perfectly distinct from any other form of insanity. Sextons and gravediggers call this affliction tombstone madness. Um, it received some prominence uh, because Garfield, President Garfield, um, his tomb was guarded by teams of soldiers at Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland. And they had these various soldiers. There was one named Joseph in of the 10th US infantry supposedly went insane and they had to ship him off to the asylum other people said no he was just a young soldier he didn't want to he thought this was very gruesome uh duty and and wanted to avoid it nobody wanted to hang around a graveyard after dark apparently but wimps wimps yes exactly <clears throat> but um they said at least one Young soldier at Garfield's grave was carried off with insanity. Now there was a they had an interview with a sexton, uh, and they were he was talking. They asked him what he thought produced it. And he said, um, I'm not a doctor or a scholar, but I have my belief that it's the miasma from the graves that poisons the blood and warps mm. the brain. Just see, as cool as it is this evening, the vapor is rising, rising.
1: Yeah, and I'm like, so glad we've moved away from some of this nonsense. <laughs>
3: Well, you could also maybe point to the exposure to the heavy metals used in the embalming yeah. fluids. And, yeah, that might have something to do with it. And in the lead coffins. And the so lack it, of it, sleep. It, <laughs> lack of sleep. So y- you just never know. There, um, they believed it was a genuine um, affliction. Uh, whether it was or not, it's it's difficult to say at this point. Well, let
2: me move on to the leather thing the other thing that we really wanted to go into. And that is um you've got a section in your book, I believe it's on page eighty nine, where you'd have a couple of entries in there about people that were embalmed in alcohol. Um so Which one do you want to start with? Because they're both pretty fascinating. And then after that, I want you to talk about if you have any like favorite stories of like you mentioned earlier, exploding corpses or anything like that. If you have any favorite ones as well that go along with this. But let's start with the embalmed and alcohol guys. Okay. Um, You've got the really rich guy who dies, and before he dies, he has a sarcophagus carved out of limestone, I believe it is.
3: Right. Kentucky (laughs) blue limestone, which is supposed to be harder than marble. And at the same time, he bought a barrel of the best old bourbon. That Kentucky could produce and ordered that at his death, the whiskey should be poured upon his body after it was placed in the stone coffin. The sarcophagus was then to be hermetically sealed and placed in a grave near his residence. And they followed, uh, they say they followed this to the letter. Uh, What amuses me about this is they say he was a constant imbiber of apple brandy and never left his house without a flask full in his pocket. His body was almost ready for spontaneous combustion before his death, and yet none ever saw him too much intoxicated to attend to business and to talk sensibly on any and all subjects. Now that dig about spontaneous combustion – There was a a belief that drunkards were most subject to spontaneously combusting, so... I wonder if they really did pour it over his body or if they just used it to toast him and wish him well.
2: <laughs> so they never actually stated if they poured the alcohol onto his body or not when they put him into the ground.
3: Well, it it says that they all the directions have been followed to the letter, and it took a lot of horses to carry his body. Yeah, I going to say, that's going kind to of incredibly heavy. Yeah, you would think I so. Nice
1: pound a world around, my friend. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but... Um, he he was kind of an unusual case, but um, you have these these stories that come out, and, and they're you might say they're a form of urban legend because you don't really know if this happened. Um, now I'm going to go back again, look, give a little background. Um, there's a, a phrase that goes tapping the admiral, and uh, that refers to after the Battle of Trafalgar. <laughs> Uh, Admiral Nelson was killed, and they put him in a barrel of brandy to bring him back to England so they could have a hero's funeral. Normally, if you were a sa- regular sailor, you just get sewed up in your hammock and thrown overboard. Mm-hmm. But they brought him back, and supposedly some of the sold- sailors wanted to have a drink or else wanted to um, imbue themselves with his heroic Spirit. Oh, so they knew he was. Oh, I didn't. Oh, They, God. they knew uh, that the Admiral was uh, in the brandy, uh, so they supposedly uh, sipped the brandy. Uh, but we have other urban legends uh, about people that weren't so lucky, didn't know. I was going to uh, say,
2: I always thought there was an impression they didn't know that a body was in there until after they drank it all. Uh, then they realized no, it. That,
3: that's, that's the urban legend. And, and here's one from Pennsylvania uh, that this fellow. His name was General Edward Pakenham, and he commanded the British in the attack on New Orleans uh, in the War of 1812. And they were trying to ship him back to England in a cask of rum. And for some reason, the cask got sent back to Charleston. Um, it was sent to a grocer, and a spigot was put in the barrel, and people were enjoying the good Jamaican rum. Eventually, it ran out, and... Um, somebody stove in the top of the barrel and found this corpse. And apparently there were some men there who oh. had been in New Orleans and knew who this guy was. Oh. Now that sounds a bit improbable. So that's why I'm saying this might be one of those. Um, oh, just life. the thought of it. So well, there disgusting. is the whiskey
1: toe out West. The,
3: that, oh yeah. The whiskey toe. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, I can well, think
1: of worse things to put in your body. What's the Not whiskey? Much, toe? There's there's a there's I can't remember exactly
3: where is it, it's Is it out west or is it up in Alaska? I think it's out west. I think
2: it's in Alaska. I think I know what you're talking about.
3: It, it's a frozen toe and they put it in. It's sort of like the worm and the tequila except you don't really drink the toe. Yeah,
1: you're supposed yeah. to you're supposed to drink when you when you drink it you're supposed to tip it back so that the toe actually touches your lips or it doesn't count.
2: Ah.
3: Yeah, well, it's
2: saying it's in a Yukon bar. There you go. Okay. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's called the well, Sour Toe Cocktail. There it is. Oh. Sour Toe Cocktail. <laughs> uh,
3: this oh. sounds horrid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, here's one even more horrid. And this comes not from um, this book, uh, the Victorian Book of the Dead, but from another book of mine called The Face in the Window. And it comes from Ironton, Ohio. Um, A cask containing mutilated remains of a human was found floating in the Ohio River at Ironton. And some of the Irontonian wine guzzlers, seeing the reddened water oozing from the bunghole, thinking it was wine, drank it. How their stomachs felt (laughs) after opening the barrel can better (sighs) be imagined than described.
2: Oh, the bodily fluids.
1: Now,
3: now, uh, to be fair, to be fair, this was in a Portsmouth paper, and they're just upstream from, or downstream from Ironton, and they were always rivals. So I'm hoping that this is just some sort of apocryphal tale making fun of the folks from Ironton. But, hey, stranger things have happened.
1: Well, you know what, though? I mean, if you really want to think about it, if the body has been... If the body has been left out long enough for the blood to drain from it, the only thing you're really drinking is the myoglobin, which is the protein from the the body. You're itself, not making it so. any better at all. But really? still, it's not like you're drinking blood. <laughs> well,
3: but these weren't these bodies probably were not drained of the blood or of the entrail fluids. Ah. <laughs> oh, that's <gotta> be... <laughs> or, Sorry. <laughs> Just being factual. I know. (laughs) It's
0: great. It's
3: great. (laughs) Uh, So what
2: other tales of strange bodily happenings could you possibly come up off the top of your head?
3: One of my favorite stories, or it's a theme really, is what I call the crepe threat. Um, And this is kind of like mobsters sending funeral flowers to one of their rival gangsters you would tie crepe to somebody's door as a threat. <laughs>
0: hmm.
3: and, and people took it very seriously. They would call the police and uh, complain, and, and they'd track down the person and give them a warning. It's, it was just an odd thing um, to do. But it's hard to believe why a strip of black cloth tied to a doorknob would be so scary. And I can't think of a, another equivalent in modern society. But, um, what, tell me what?
1: Empty shell case.
3: Hmm. Is this like Empty the horse being found, the horse head being found
2: the, in the bed, like in, uh, the yeah. Godfather. Yeah, that
1: wasn't it, a stuffed horse head either. I just found out that that's a horse head that they had gotten from a dog food plant. That was a real horse's oh, head in, in that movie. movie. Really? Yes. Oh gosh. I just found that out. What? Uh, Wednesday. <laughs>
3: oh, okay. Well, Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> people got very upset. Uh, they would walk up the street and they'd see, you know, crepe to tie to somebody's doorknob and they'd get all freaked out. Who died? Oh, what happened? What happened? And um, it, it's just difficult for us to understand the effect that this had on people. And if you came home and you found crepe on your own, uh, there was actually a young man. Uh, he was he was a seminarian. And he decided to pay sort of an unexpected visit to his parents. He shows up. There's crepe on the door, and he gets so upset that he dies. It turned out his father had, had died. And he they, they claimed he got meningitis from the shock, but obviously. <laughs> yes. Sounds more like stroke okay. or heart attack. Right, right. Or uh, Hashimoto's syndrome, something like that. The broken heart syndrome. So, um, yeah, that's one of my favorite themes. I I was surprised to find so many. Or there was a father whose uh, daughter married without his consent, and he put mourning on and put crepe on the door and said, she's dead to me. And his neighbors were very upset with him for doing that. They felt that was very disrespectful.
1: I don't understand why that would be a problem.
3: Um, let's see. There's also the man who um, he had something against decomposition. He, he did not want to be resurrected, and he did not want to become one with the earth. So he ordered that his body be um, cremated, and then he had the ashes. He directed that the ashes be pressed into bricks, uh, pressed into the face of the brick is the epitaph: "Died May 30th, 1907, Herman Unger. Leave me in peace." And the bricks were composed of five parts of cement and one part of ashes. He th- he just hmm. found he thought the idea of anything growing out of his body he just found that totally repulsive. Wow.
2: Which is so there's that there's a service out now where you can have your ashes put inside of like a, a tree container.
3: Yes, and yes. There's a whole in,
1: bunch of them
2: now. Yeah, and you'll grow out of it. You know, a tree will grow out of you.
3: Which is so. a nice idea, except that the the uh, cremated ash is pretty sterile and it it yep. doesn't do a very good job of fertilization. No,
2: it's just kind of there. It's kind so, of like, oh, the, uh, look at the tree
3: growing out of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a very famous, I think it's Connecticut or Massachusetts, uh, body, uh, they planted an apple tree on the grave. And when they had to cut the, I think they had to dig up the grave for some reason, the apple tree roots had gone into the body and yep. gone along all the nerves and bones and things. So it was like a skeletal root system. It was beautiful.
1: Yep. Yeah, there's a bunch of... Uh... We have a bunch of um, strange and macabre things happen here in New England. As you know, being <laughs> yes. as old as we are out here.
3: Oh, well, yes. Um, you know, we've had we've trees got...
1: topple over in and... you know during storms that were in graveyards that we didn't even know existed. Ooh. And when they go over, it pulls up you know bones and caskets and remains.
3: Uh, oh, that's too bad. So... Well, out in New England, of course, you've got the vampires. Um... Oh yeah,
1: yeah. It was uh, it was actually. We had a case in Griswold in, I want to say it was the middle the 1800s. We also had it in Manchester, Connecticut or Man- Manchester, Vermont, mm-hmm. and there was one other case close by. I think it was Milford, close by. All of them are within like 45 minute drive
3: from me. Ooh, yeah, that was um, that was really a sad thing. There was actually um, one in Ohio here. Which I was surprised. I'd never seen it out he- in this area, but uh, the family—I think somebody died of tuberculosis—and they mm-hmm. they dug him up, yep. took his, took his heart out, and burned it, and ate the ashes. What?
1: Yep. Yeah, that's that's typical of what was done to people yeah. that were believed to be uh, uh, vampires.
3: Yeah, they believed that the the white death, the consumption, was um, the result of the dead person preying on the rest of the family. Yeah. They didn't know about the contagion of uh, and how highly contagious tuberculosis is. So they <sighs> thought taking the heart out of the, the dead person and burning it to ashes and eating it would cure
1: yeah. the consumption. It was a particular way it had to be done, too.
3: Yeah, you had to crack open the ribs and everything. Yep. Yeah, it's you had very, to remove the heart
1: with the, uh, if you were to bring... You were t- you were supposed to take the take the body up, cut through you know the, the main flesh with a knife, crack open the rib cage. the The heart was supposed to be removed with a pitchfork or some other implement, so yep. you didn't actually touch it. What? Yep. That's yep. a and then lot it was of work. Man. It was. They it also a- removed the lungs at times and did the same thing. They did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the body was supposed to be put back into the hole with. Um, some of them took the legs and cut the legs off and placed them across the across the chest so that it was, you know, skull and crossbones Mm. to keep them from coming up again. If their legs were missing, they couldn't get out of the the grave.
3: (laughs) You just can't imagine the desperation of a family doing this and then to have the rest of the family keep dying. Yep. You know, we did all this horrible, horrible, gruesome ritual, and it still didn't work. That's... uh, Ugh, as long as you got your crepe on though you should be okay yes you should be fine that you should be great
2: fine. <laughs> well let me ask you one last question before we let you go um one of to... my
3: other favorite oh go ahead i'm sorry go okay. ahead, go I, ahead. Was just, I was just going to tell one more f- story that I, I found particularly intriguing um it's entitled the parrot was a gas fiend and mm. this um Little well, This young woman, she was 23, Alice Knott in um, Washington, D.C., had a parrot that nobody liked in the household except her. And he would pull the tips off of the illuminating gas oh, fixtures no. <laughs> and s- sniff the gas, and he would fall over. And then somebody would find him and revive him, and, and he would do it again. Well, one day, she was taking a nap. He took off the tip in her room and started, as they put, a gas debauch. This time there was no one near to avert the consequences of his deed. When Miss Knott's relatives, alarmed by her long silence, broke open the door, they found her dead. Her little murderer was found half unconscious by the door. When he found himself succumbing to the gas and was not rescued as usual, he realized something was wrong and had wit or instinct enough to make for the door and shove his bill as far as he could underneath it. He recovered, and while the coroner was in the house, the malignant little bird was caught trying to turn on the gas again.
2: Oh, my God. The bird was a junkie.
3: <laughs> junkie. Wow. Oh, my Man.
2: Gosh. All right. Um, how do you find all this stuff? How, how did you research all this? Because this book is huge. I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface of everything that's covered in this book. And uh, I remember maybe. when I contacted you you were like, "Yeah, I'm going to need some reference because there's so much in the book." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's a lot in here." <laughs> well,
3: I've got enough in my files for probably six sequels. You um, should write them. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Please. <laughs> well, it I was I was working on my other books in my Ghost of the Past series, The Face in the Window and The Headless Horror and The Ghost War Black, I just kept coming up with these wonderful stories and I've, I I that had to do with mourning and it had to do with death, had to do with crepe. And I realized when I started collecting jokes about widows and cholera and the gallows, it was time to write a book about Victorian death.
2: So you still got plenty more of this stuff. Though. Oh this my is... gosh.
3: It, it's really amazing how much there is. I mean, you could probably write a book just on widow jokes. <laughs> they, they <laughs> That's had great field day. <laughs> telling jokes about widows would you like to hear one sure go right ahead okay let me let me find my favorite here do you think julia will always keep on mourning for her husband yes she's going to marry a man named black (laughs) i'll I'll be here all week
2: (laughs) try the prime rib it's great go
3: ahead you got any more (laughs) oh yeah um they say that mrs Jelliff has given up that pet white poodle of hers says mrs jobson Yes, said Mrs. Williger. She's in deep mourning for Mr. Jellif, you know, so she's exchanged Toby for a black and tan. (laughs) (laughs) A Fifth Fifth Avenue widow informed a friend at the funeral that she couldn't tell whether she would wear mourning or not until her husband's will was (laughs) read. So, anyway. Where do you find these?
2: How do you find this stuff? I mean, is this just hours pouring over, pouring over old newspapers? Or? It
3: is. It is. And um, you, you can only do so much with keyword search, you know. And as I'm researching ghost stories, I scroll over to the next column, and there's widow jokes or a joke about cholera. and joke uh, about cholera? Oh, was, oh. my God. I, I actually wrote an entire blog post on cholera jokes. Um Talk about gallows humor. I mean, people really were afraid of cholera because it killed in hours. It, it didn't take much. And uh, and yet there's lots and lots of jokes about it. So I, <laughs> the resiliency uh, of the human spirit, I suppose. Well, before we let you go, uh,
2: this is the part of the show we always give our guests. Where can people find you? Um, do you have a blog? Where can people find your books? What books do you have out there? You know go right ahead and say anything you want.
3: Well, thanks Um, the Victorian Book of the Dead of course is what we've been discussing Um, There's other there's three other books in the series so far I've got two others in the works right now, but uh, there's the headless horror strange and ghostly Ohio tales and the face in the window haunting Ohio tales and the ghost wore black ghastly tales from the past I'm particularly fond of The Ghost War Black because it has uh, an entire chapter on the women in black who were specters that haunted wearing Victorian widow's weeds. They were veiled and completely dressed in black, and they scared the bejesus out of people flitting around in the dark. Uh, Nobody knows whether they – I'm sure it varied from community to community, uh, but they could have been real human beings uh, or – Ghosts, it's it's or omens of death. It's kind of hard to tell sometimes. Hmm. So those are the books that I have. You can find my blog at hauntedohiobooks.com. I'm also on Facebook uh, with the Victorian Book of the Dead and uh, Haunted Ohio by Chris Woodyard. I made my name writing ghost lore about Ohio. I've got seven volumes uh, in the Haunted Ohio series, but then I've gone into the gone into the past and i'm really enjoying looking at historic 40 stories
2: well thank you very much for coming on here this is um i i really do love this book i, I can't put it over enough it's a very big book it's over 300 pages um it says on here it's like nineteen ninety nine. I think it might be a little bit less than that. You can find it yep. on Amazon. You can find yep. it out there.
3: Absolutely, yeah.
2: Well worth the money. Usually books of this size with this much stuff them are like forty plus dollars.
3: You know? Well, <laughs> so I'll I'll bring it up a little at the next printing then. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a fantastic
2: yeah. book. It's Thank it, you. Really recommend people go out and find this. I'm going to have links where they can find it on our on our in the show notes for this episode, and um, you know I'll put links to your blogs and things like that so people can find you. Uh, thank you very much for coming on Project Archivist, and we will be hounding you again in the future. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
3: <laughs> My pleasure. My so. pleasure. It's delightful, Lobo, to find someone else that enjoys the macabre. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you two would hit it off, too. That's the thing. Yeah. Before we
2: started the show. um. To find. <laughs> um Lobo's been hearing me rant about this book for a while now, and about trying to get you on here, and I'm like, you're going to be fine on this, don't worry, because he already knew a lot of this stuff off the top of his head, and I'm like, this sure, is, you're going to be great with this, don't worry about it, and it turned out fantastic. So, thank you very much, Chris, for coming thank on Project Thank you, Archivist. I really
3: appreciate it. Thanks for coaching me along. Oh, no problem. <laughs>
2: And that was Chris out of Ohio studying was great. all of this stuff. You guys hit it off real well. Yep. And you little bastard are getting an autographed copy I of am. the book sent to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Dude, I'm psyched. You know how hard it is to find someone that is that into the macabre? Oh, I mean, we,
2: we find I them, but it's stuff. hard.
1: It's rare. I mean, in, in normal, everyday walkabout life, like as I like to say, in the wild, when I start talking about macabre stuff, two things usually happen people either glaze over or they walk away well she was saying off the air that she's
2: got enough stuff to probably write six more books actually oh, I she it's might awesome. have said that on the air I don't
1: remember yeah, I, don't, I mean
2: how these people research this is beyond me like I don't have the patience to go in a to find these old newspaper clippings and then sit down with them
1: it's oh, the same thing can, with
2: Robert you know you
1: need to go you need to go to your local library or chamber of Commerce or, or whatever and sit down with the microfilm and the microfiche machines and just go through the old stuff dude. i don't There's have
2: time awesome i would rather be the stuff. creepy guy that shows up at somebody's house and be like hey can i go dig through your file cabinet for like the next <laughs> six hours you know like like john tinney around here i've i was talking to tinney and he's like he's just got file cabinets and file cabinets full of stuff we were talking to robert off the air last show and he's like oh yeah i've got lots of this stuff laying around here you know i would just and it's like it's like we're telling robert i'm like you got to do something with this stuff because if you pass away or something happens, it's kind of all this knowledge is going to be lost. These people accumulate all this stuff and that's, this is why these people are important because these little bits of history will just get lost. You yeah. know, unless there's somebody to go out there and dig this stuff up and put it out there for everybody to read about. You know, it that would be the coolest thing in the world for me is just to go and sit and dig through somebody's files of all this strange stuff. But then I'd probably be like, why aren't you writing about this? And why aren't you writing about that? And why aren't you writing? Because I don't have enough time, you know? That would be what would happen. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know what? it's There's a lot of really good information.
2: We barely even scratched the surface no. of what's in this book. This book is huge. There's so much stuff in here. I, what I did is, I normally don't do this with guests, but when I was talking to her on Twitter, I'm like, we want to cover all this. And she's like, could you just give me some page numbers and stuff because there's so much in here. Normally, I don't do that with guests. Because I, I like it to keep it organic and to flow and everything, but this time around I said yeah, sure, no problem because there is so much in here,
1: but it yeah, really but didn't. You even... sent it all. You sent the, the page numbers to her, and we still ended up talking about stuff that wasn't. From the
2: yeah, page. exactly, and it just so... flowed so well. And there was like sh- another thing is she really didn't just look at the. I mean, she read some stuff out of the book. But only a she little bit. This stuff
1: off the top of her head. And yeah,
2: that was it's awesome. People like that blow my mind. Absolutely. So, anyways, back to the family <laughs> being juggalos. Um,
1: <laughs> Kids, man. Easy.
2: <laughs> yeah, the I I sent Lobo out a box to completely change directions here. I sent Lobo out a box of of Fago, uh, big you know little bottles of Fago because you do they don't have Fago out where you're at.
1: Uh we do, but it's no, red. You've got like cola, probably yep. Red Pop. Um, no, nope, no Red Pop. You don't have Red Pop. No, dude. We don't. First of all, we don't call soda pop.
2: What's well, called here. Red Pop? Fago so- Red Pop is called Red Pop. That's what it's called. Fago Red Pop.
1: Great. We don't have it.
2: Well, that's what it's called. And I sent you some, didn't I? No. Oh man. All right. No. I gotta fix that. I gotta. No,
1: fix no, that. really, you don't. Because <laughs> if it's anything like the the red cream soda that we get, or the Reds, Rock and Rye. I don't know. Whatever. When we're in Indiana, we get it. It's red cream soda, and it's a red can, and it's horrid. I don't know why everybody goes. It's called Rock
2: out. and Rye. Yeah, that's that's called that's Fago Rock and Rye. You just gave a dozen people in Detroit listening to the show right now a heart attack.
0: Good, <laughs>
1: good. <laughs> Screw you. I don't know, dude. I no, it's not Rock and no, Rye. No, it's, okay. it's It's Barks Red Cream Soda. Oh
2: no, that's not Fago. Okay, never mind no. then. Okay, no, how dare you take the name of Fago in vain? Okay, what? never mind. Nothing. We're good. We're good now. Shut All up. Right. We're good. <laughs> Everybody in Detroit right now is like, "Oh my god!"
1: <laughs> I love Fago. We used to be able to get it like out here, like Shoprite used to carry it, and they carried all the flavors. They used to carry the chocolate, and they don't make that anymore. Then they no, started making
2: dude. the j- chocolate cream soda. They don't make that anymore either.
1: Dude, when I used to go to the shows, when I used to go to the clown shows, when they were here, they used to have they used to be at the Webster Theater, which is a small little theater, and they would spray everybody with with Fago, like yeah. they would at any of the normal concerts. But yeah. it was, you know. It was, yeah, everybody's getting sprayed by Fago. And I'd been drinking this stuff
2: for years. you're before like, I, can I, I have a no bottle drink. of that?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't waste it. Give it to yo, me. Yo,
2: Violent Jay, can you give me a two liter dope? Yeah, no, no, okay.
1: <laughs> yo, Shags.
2: <laughs> so, anyways, um, yeah, no show next week because I'm going to be going down to Texas to uh, go to the uh, thing that I'm not supposed to call the Tim Benall meetup because he quickly jumped on me on, on Facebook and corrected me. Whatever. I don't even know what the hell this is going to be. This is how this is working out. Okay.
1: Paramelia or Paramania?
2: Paramania, I guess it's called. Because I guess WrestleMania is also happening in town at the same time.
1: Is that why he's... They are. Him and Vaney are huge wrestlers. I don't know.
2: So apparently what it is, I know there's a few people, like Tina Cena's coming down there, and uh, oh, I, nice. I guess uh, Redfern's supposed to be there. Redford lives right there, so hopefully I'll hook up with TJ from the 13th calls too, because he's supposed to live in the area as well. Uh-huh. Um, Dell's supposed to come down. Uh, Del yep. and his husband are supposed to come down. Yep. How it's working is I'm flying out there on Friday morning. I get down in Texas at 9, and then... Um, somehow or another i'm gonna get transported from the airport be it taxi a or something or another to get to the hotel and then chuck from wheel nerds is coming later chuck but he's or. not coming until nine o'clock at night
1: dude you so, should be afraid dude he is a no neck head crusher that dude is dude, massive he's buff now he's, and he's massive i'm dude.
2: convinced he says he's not but i am convinced dude, he's yakuza you
1: know what the dude's got dude more ink on
2: him massive he's big he has no neck dude he's big <laughs> He's much, much bigger than I remember him being. And I'm like, oh, you're big now. Am I going to get you're raped? <laughs> oh,
1: come on, dude. You're three bills all day long and over six feet. You've got nothing to be afraid of. I
2: have no muscle. I've got a giant muscle around my stomach region, and that's really about it. As we discussed dude, when we went okay, out to dinner together, listen. I said my stomach has its own gravitational field.
1: Listen, in order for you to be able to move that carcass around, you have to have Carcass.
2: Muscle. Carcass, folks. Did you hear? He called me a carcass. <laughs>
1: What I say about myself, dude, I'm over two bills and I gotta lug this carcass around.
2: I'm 5'8 on a good day. For the record, I am going to start going to the gym here real soon again. But, um.
1: Get swole.
2: What? No, no, I'm going to go to lose weight and get some circulation going through me. Get swole. So, anyhow, we're all gonna go down to Texas. I don't entirely know exactly what's going on, and when I did call it the Tim and I'll meet Meetup thing, Tim was like, "Don't call it that because I don't want to be obligated to have to meet up with people and blah 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 blah." And I'm like, "Excuse me, Mister Snooty Pants,
1: Mister Snooty
2: Pants." But apparently, we're supposed to go down to, uh, down to where Kennedy was assassinated. So I'm gonna try to get a picture of myself up on the grassy knoll, and um, I, I really don't entirely know what's going. on. I mean, there's been itinerary put up because this is like the unparanormal convention. There's no there's no real structure or anything to it, which I am terrified of, but we're just going to see what's going to happen. You know, um, I don't know how many people that listen to this show are actually going to be down there. So I'm going to be there and, you know, by all means come up and say hi to me, talk to me, shake my hand, buy me, buy me food, buy me, Beer, alcohol, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> that's what uh, Chuck said. I'm like, how do I pay you back for this? Oh, just take me out and get me something to eat and buy a whole bunch of Not Your Father's Root Beer. So, and that's it. So that'll be going on next week. And then after that, everything will be kind of cool and kosher and back to somewhat normal again. But I'm going to take a break from doing interviews for a little while, I think.
1: Uh, yeah. I'm going to be at a freaking dance competition.
2: Oh, yeah. Because you got juggalos that are in dance school.
1: Yeah, they are. My youngest has a, or not my youngest. My middle has a solo, so she's going. She hits the stage at 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. on Saturday. We have to we have to leave here at 5 a.m. to for a curtain call. Yeah, up in Torrington, and then both of them, my middle and my oldest, are in uh, multi numbers. So we'll see what happens.
2: I told you my my youngest came out of the closet as a vegetarian, right?
1: Yeah, dude, I I, I gave my condolences to
2: you. I don't think it's that bad. I'm kind of cool dude, with it. I just I, I was think, a
1: vegetarian for a year, dude. It didn't work out.
2: It's a hard lifestyle to maintain, especially if you live in a house full of meat eaters. And I'm like, I'm totally uh, dude, cool everybody with this, in my
1: house ate meat. What are you talking about?
2: I'm like, I'm cool with this. I use the word like too much, but anyways, I go, I'm cool with
1: that this. Valley girl, like, I know,
2: like, I, I do it. I, I don't know how many times I said it in this interview, but anyways, um. I said, I'm totally cool with this. I've got no problem at all with it. It's probably a much healthier lifestyle than I thought about. I'm like, But that doesn't mean you can sit around the house and eat french fries and macaroni and cheese all day long. Because yeah, she's right. not vegan. She just wants to be a vegetarian. Right. And then you know, and then she's like, I think I'm gonna vote for Bernie Sanders and you know and I'm like what? And I did it again. I go, uh so is there anything else you'd like to tell me here or <laughs> Wow.
1: No. are you barefoot
2: sometimes? Are you smoking weed? Are you going to ask for tickets to Lilith Fair? (laughs) Hey, Lilith Fair's good. They don't do it anymore. They haven't done a Lilith Fair in a long time. Nobody knows what the hell we're talking about right now.
1: Some of the older people do. Uh,
2: all right, let's 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 wrap this up and call it good, because we've been meandering here for just 15 minutes alone on this stuff.
1: Give somebody a shout-out. I can't remember who it was. Oh, gosh.
2: Uh, Logan, South Africa, how you doing? Haven't given him a shout-out in a while. Uh, our attorney buddy who's on the West Coast who has yet to get back with me. We've got a guy. We've got a guy got that listens to the guy, show. See. We've got this guy C, who I apologize, I can't remember your name exactly off the top of my head, but he sends me this message saying that he's an attorney of the strange, and he's got a podcast going as well. And I and listened Ooh. to a couple episodes, and you know, he's like, "Yeah, if you guys want to talk," I'm like, "Okay, well, what do you do?" And He's just like sends me this message back with a chuckle, saying, "We'll talk," and I'm like, "No, what? Look,
1: I, who I, is I, your daddy, and you know, what does, does, he does
2: he do? do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what's going on here? Because you're fiercely interesting." And then uh, we've got a whole bunch of these listeners in the background that are very interesting people that I want to start pulling onto the show. Stephanie is one of them.
1: Oh, my uh, God, I want to talk to this yes, woman so badly.
2: Stephanie is this wonderfully eccentric woman who listens Stephanie to the show is cool. who is a huge base of knowledge, and I'm just going to yank her and follow, pull I her onto the show. I would her
1: stalker. if I lived out there. I would stalk her incessantly. She's I love just that
2: this woman. wonderfully eccentric woman, and normally that is, a, that is a term of endearment. It's not like, you know, she's crazy, but she's wonderfully funny, cool, crazy. And we're going to get this woman on here to talk to her at some point. Many of you already know who she is if you're part of the Facebook page. Um, But we've got all these people that are in the background that slowly but surely, I'm like, we've we've attracted this really neat group of people out there that I'm like, I want to talk to you on the air. I want to talk to you on the air. And there's another girl that's been uh, talking to me via Facebook for a while. And um, she was the one that sent me that article about the uh, neo-Nazis having the uh, her name's allison and she was the one that sent me the article about the neo-nazis where they discovered all of these books on witchcraft that the nazis had hidden off to the side
1: oh the occult yeah yeah
2: and she she's really into the occult and she's done all this studying and stuff and i'm like i need to get you on the show i need to get you on the show and so she's another person that i would like to talk to eventually at some point but anyways um i'm babbling and it's all to do with uh 1893 pepsi cola the original cola a bold spin on the original cola, which comes in a black can, which I'm not trying to be racist. Dark okay. brown malt flavor, cola nut extract, boldly blended.
1: I remember who I was supposed to give a shout out to. Who? Uh, Ishrut. Who? She's a girl who listens. She's on our show page, but she's from Bangladesh. Really? Yeah, she's such a sweetheart. Really? Yeah, Absolutely. She's from
2: Bangladesh. It yep. blows my in, mind how we get people from Africa, all over Bangladesh. the world. It's so it's so crazy how. <sighs> oh, she's such a sweetheart. She's just a kid too. This is what's <laughs> like when, we go, when I go to this Paramania thing. I'm going to be like, like, oh, it's it's Roe from Project Archivist. He's got like 10 listeners. It's like no. <laughs> We've got people from all over the world.
1: <laughs> we have people, yeah, like literally. You have all no over idea,
2: all over the world. Anyways, um, so I guess I'll just leave you with this parting words of wisdom: um, When you clean a vacuum, you are literally becoming a vacuum cleaner. Was that the I way it was posted? Dude,
1: I saw that. And I was like, mind blown.
2: <laughs> Is that like when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back? If you stare into the vacuum, the vacuum stares back. When you clean a I, vacuum, when you clean your vacuum cleaner, you are literally becoming, literally a, vacuum becoming clean, a vacuum cleaner. Literally becoming a vacuum cleaner. Because you are cleaning the vacuum. Let that roll around inside your head. Anyways, this is Ro. Peace out from Detroit.
1: Slow from Connecticut. I'm not a freak.
2: Peace. Peace.